Welcome to a podcast series, Learning About Children and Youth with Problematic Sexual Behavior with Renee Roman and Jenny Almanzar, trainer and consultants for the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth. Resources from this podcast are supported in part by a National Child Traumatic Stress Network Category 2 grant, number H79SM085083, sponsored by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Views expressed in these podcasts do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration or the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. Hi, welcome back to our four-part series on children with problematic sexual behavior. Today, we're going to do our fourth podcast, and it is going to be discussing a career in the arena of working with children with problematic sexual behavior. Jenny Almanzar is going to talk to us about this topic. Hi, Jenny. How are you today? I'm good, Renee. Um, How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm wondering if you'd like to tell everybody a little bit about your career in this field. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker in the state of New York, and I've worked for the last 20 years in a trauma treatment program for families impacted by childhood sexual abuse. Uh, In this program, I had got a full view look at all the um, components of childhood sexual abuse, which included also working with children with illegal and problematic sexual behavior and adults who've sexually offended. Um, I'm also a national uh, trainer and consultant with the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth. Um, and I'm also a consultant for specialized services at a local residential treatment program uh, working with youth with problematic sexual behavior. That sounds like you do have a lot of good experience to speak from. Thinking about um, a career in this field, I'm wondering, could you talk to us a little bit about what some of the skills are that would be helpful for a clinician to have when working with this population? Yes, I I think some of the most important um, areas to have understanding is really a solid understanding of of child development and even more specifically child sexual development. Understanding what sexual behaviors that youth exhibit that are normative such as exploratory behaviors. Um, these are things like you show me, you show me yours and I'll show you mine or behaviors based on mutual agreement, behaviors that are spontaneous and don't involve negative feelings such as anger or things like threats or bribes. You know, these would all fall into a normative range for um, sexual behaviors of children. And it's important to know that, you know, all children do have um, some type of sexual behaviors in their development. Um, then we would want people to have an understanding of not only normative sexual behaviors, but also what are those behaviors that are problematic or illegal. So once someone understands normative sexual development, it's, it's easier to sort out if the exhibiting child's behaviors are problematic or illegal. So problematic behaviors would involve, um, the touching or looking at another person's private parts. Um, showing their own private parts to others or making others uncomfortable with their sexual behavior. Uh, Those would all fall into the range of problematic. 
problematic behaviors that would require intervention. And then illegal behaviors would be those sexual behaviors that rise to the level of violating whatever state laws or federal laws um, that, you know, that are out there. So some other helpful skills are a solid understanding of the myths around this population. And we, we've covered that in one of our uh, podcasts in, during this series, it was our second podcast. So it's important that a person working with problematic sexual behavior be able to comfortably talk about sex, sexuality terms and concepts, and be able to do so with both children and adults. We're often um, in positions of helping families learn how to openly communicate about sex with one another in the hopes that, you know, in the future, the child will turn to their, their caregivers um, with their questions about sex or sexual behavior. It's also important that a person in this field feel comfortable in working with both adults and children, because we can't work with youth with problematic sexual behavior successfully without being able to engage caregivers. And then some other areas are clinical skills such as uh, motivational interviewing can be helpful when working with mandated families to help move them forward. The ability to recognize trauma responses and reminders and not only in the child, but also in um, the other family members. Being able to complete holistic assessments and have knowledge about how to utilize multiple sources for those assessments. A provider should have a knowledge base of community resources. And probably most beneficial is the ability to instill hope in these families uh, by understanding the research around um, positive treatment outcomes. Wow, th those sound like a lot of a lot of core skills and also some specialized knowledge that's required. I'm wondering, could you share with us where an individual could get some of that specialized training that you're talking about? Yeah, so there's there's multiple places um, that people can uh, um, gain some of this information. Um, you can learn more about problematic sexual behavior through um, several resources, such as. Um, our own organization, the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth, and that's NCSBY for short. Um, also the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, or NCTSN for short, if you're Googling. Um, resources can be also found through ATSA, the Association for the Treatment and Prevention of Sexual Abuse, and they have, um, they have documents rega regarding adults and children, so you'd want to look at the specific content that's addressing uh, youth. And then the National Children's Alliance, NCA, as well as the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, OJJDP. All of those um, agencies have information regarding uh, children with problematic sexual behavior. I believe links are also gonna be provided at the end of this podcast um, for folks to be able to access those two or in addition to this podcast. So. Thanks for that, Jenny. Those are those sound like some really reputable and great places to be able to get some good information. Um, you know, I, I'm also thinking along with the skills, I'm wondering what are some of the common challenges that uh, therapists might face in working with these, this population and with these families? So, um, you know, one of the things that we're uh, seeing a lot of is a lack of a coordinated community response or system barriers. 
there may be inconsistencies in how the cases are managed. So that can happen not just state to state, but often even within one state, um, there can be a struggle to um, have a consistent response. So it, it is helpful to develop um, consistent responses in your states, um, but it would also be great if we had a consistent response you know, nationally as well. Often the myths about the population are widely believed um, not only by just you know general population, but also um, professionals. So that can be a challenge as well. If um, and and again, I'll refer to our podcast about the myths. You know, if if others are widely believing these myths about this um, population about children with problematic sexual behavior, it's very very hard to um, get a consistent response or have people who are wanting to help uh, address this issue. There can be challenges with sustainability in programs as providers can maybe feel overwhelmed or under-supported, especially given um, an inconsistent response. There's things like exposure to secondary trauma and secondary trauma is the emotional toll on a person who may hear firsthand trauma experiences from another person. Um, it would be important to have an understanding of family systems and what it may be like for a caregiver who has an exhibiting and an impacted child in their family and what their divided loyalties may be like for them. Um, how to help families who don't have hope or the other end of the spectrum maybe don't see any issue um, with their child's behavior or don't believe their child has problematic sexual behavior. Those can all be areas that um, can be a challenge. Um, so sometimes those families need help working through that you know, denial or shame or guilt or what, are, what those underlying feelings are that may be contributing to their, uh, their views. Yeah, it, you know, I'm wondering, you talked a lot about um, some of the, the challenges to the therapists themselves, the secondary trauma, the frustrations sometimes with systems and lack of system change or system support. When you are a team member or, or someone working within an organization or with coworkers in this field, do you have any tips or thoughts for how to best support people in this work? Yes, I, I think um, you know, providing supervision and, and open opportunities for team members to share feelings and frustrations and also their successes it is very helpful. Um, I really think it's important for uh, providers to give each other grace. So not only do we want people to give their clients grace, but also each other grace, because this is a very hard topic and it can bring up many feelings for people. Um, and that, that may require some additional supports or supervision around, around those feelings. Um, it's important to understand the difference between burnout and secondary trauma um, so that you can better help your teammate, your team member. Um, both burnout and secondary trauma create elevated stress, um, but it's, but they're different. So um, burnout doesn't require necessarily exposure to a traumatic event, but it can be created by an unsupported work environment or, or feeling overwhelmed. While secondary trauma, again, is really that response to hearing clients tell their stories and bearing witness to those, to those traumatic events. 
So it's important that we understand the difference between the two so that we can offer the correct support and guidance for our team members. Most importantly, it's uh, to believe that people generally are trying their best, um, but may need supervision to address concerns with clients, but also, um, you know, look at how their personal lives may be impacted by the work that they are doing and being able to have an open conversation with our team members about how our work impacts us at home um, because we, we, you know, we're bound by confidentiality and we can't always talk about these things with our support systems at home. Um, and so we may need to, um, you know, work with our team members on, on supporting each other in that way. A career in this field sounds both challenging, um, yet I'm hoping folks have also thought through the series of this podcast that um, it may be something that they want to uh, branch into, um, something that they want to learn more about. What kinds of things should a person think about, um, a provider think about before entering into this field? What kind of considerations should they give, do you think? I think it's important that, um, you know, someone who may have their own uh, trauma history can be both beneficial to the field with their own experiences and um, in how they've you know, managed those experiences, but also it can, it can add some barriers. So it would be important that a person who enters the field with their own history of trauma has really worked through that personal trauma history with a plan of how to manage potential triggers um, moving forward professionally. Um, determine for yourself, can you work with both children and adults? So sometimes people go into the, the profession having a preference of working with either children or adults, but not typically both. But it is important in this field, um, since caregivers and the adults um, who support these children are an, an um, integral part of the progress that they can make, that we work with, be able to work with both and have skills with working with both children and adults. Um, you'd want to consider if you may believe the myths about this population. Um, you know, if you do believe those myths, do you believe that these families or these children are capable of change? And, you know, if we refer you back to our first podcast um, in the series, which was about uh, the doorways through which families uh, walk through, you know, we'll remind you that how families present to you as a provider and if you are believing those myths, um, how you may respond and how that could create um, barriers for the family. So, you know, it'd be important to ask yourself, what biases do, do you hold about families with children with problematic sexual behavior? And can you work with those feelings? And do you feel the families are capable of change? So overall, it's important that we consider that these families are likely struggling to see a light at the end of the tunnel. It's our role as providers to approach families uh, with empathy and with support and correct information as they are likely believing these myths as well when they present to us. And so it's, it's very important that a huge part of our job is instilling hope that things can be better. Jenny, do you think that it's possible for someone to be able to do this work both with children who are impacted by the behaviors as well as children who are exhibiting these behaviors? 
Yes, not only do I think it's possible, I think it's also very beneficial to be able to have an understanding of both sides. Um, I've again, I've worked for many, many years with both uh, impacted and exhibiting children. And what I've found is that, you know, most impacted children, you know, when the exhibiting child has been in their family, they have really just wanted a safe, healthy relationship with that other child. Um, and so having an understanding of that and being able to work with exhibiting children with a victim focused lens um, of working and helping them to eventually um, help the victim indirectly, I think is, is very beneficial. So I do think it's possible to work with both and I think it can actually be very successful. Do you have any thoughts about whether or not therapists may want to work with um, children who are from the same home, both the impacted and the exhibiting child? Is that best practice or are there other recommendations out there? So I think it's, you know, so with, with limited resources, some um, programs are put in that position to have to work with um, children in the same family. And it definitely can be done. And it would be important to, um, you know, adhere to ethical standards when, when doing that, to making sure that you are, you know, what the child that you're with at that moment is your client and you're working in their best interest um, and to, you know, keep things in mind like confidentiality. So there definitely are ways to do it. It may take a little bit more um, work and more structuring of a program um, it's not always ideal, but it certainly can be done. Um, but it's also helpful to, if you are able to have a different provider, see the child, um, who's impacted and the child who's exhibiting, but work together would be essential. So even though you may have the children seeing different providers, um, it, even in the same program or, or not, it's essential that you have communication with one another to um, work together and not move forward, um, not move forward with things like contact with the children or visitations or, or, or working towards reunification unless you're aware of where each child is at in their own treatment and specifically making sure that the victim um, or the impacted child is um, in a place and ready to, to do that type of um, reconnection. Yeah. And, and, and if I could add, I would also add, I think true transparency to all the children you're working with, as well as the families that, that you are working with all of them, what you will share and what you will not share from session to session and between all of the individuals involved so that folks are aware that, you know, you're handling a very specialized situation and that um, you're not going to discuss with the impacted child what the exhibiting child child is sharing, but also vice versa. And also that the caregiver may be um, only getting some limited information from those sessions because we do still have our, our bound by confidentiality within in the therapeutic process. So I think that was really, really helpful. Thank you so much for, for having this conversation with us today, Jenny. Um, and again, just, I guess, to kind of reiterate can you um, give us just one more time place a place where maybe folks who are interested in a career in this field could find potential training um, or more information on the topic? Um, so again, and I, I hope we will be able to provide some links, but 
Um, our organization, the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth, um, NCSBY, you would be able to find some information as well as um, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, National Children's Alliance, um, OJJDP. These are all um, options to look for additional information and resources. Great. Thanks so much for coming in today, Jenny, and talking with us. Thank you. The National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth would like to thank you for listening to Learning About Children and Youth with Problematic Sexual Behavior. This podcast was brought to you by the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. We hope you will enjoy each episode in the series. Thank you for listening and learning more about problematic sexual behavior. This is serious. There is hope.